On this episode of This Week in Space, it's our first annual Halloween special, Top 10 Space Frights. Join us at your own risk. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is This Week in Space, episode number 85, recorded on October 27th, 2023, our first Halloween special. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa. More than 10,000 clients worldwide rely on Melissa for full-spectrum data quality and ID verification software. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date this holiday season. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to another episode of This Week in Space, our first Halloween special edition, The Scary Space Show. I'm here today with the ingratiatory Tarek Malik. Tarek, sorry, buddy. <laughs> Editor-in-chief <laughs> at Space.com. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well, Rod. I'm doing well. Happy early Halloween. How are you doing? I, I'm doing fine, and I see that you've come dressed for the party. What's that you're wearing, pray well, tell? Well, I am wearing my my official Space Camp uh, astronaut jumpsuit right? Yep. that I got from Adult Space Camp. Where we have drinks at Mission Control and and whatnot, but uh, but yeah, you know it's our we we didn't do this last year, so um, yeah. So I guess I guess we were trying to get into the spirit. And I see you've got a a costume of a of a room behind you. Yeah, uh, today you're in a different place today. I am at Arizona State University for the Space Settlement Summit, and I am at the Thunderbird School of Global Management uh, in the Space Initiatives Room. Oh wow, which is pretty cool. So they have a new program run by Greg Autry, a friend of mine, um, for space management entrepreneurship. And if I had the extra money, I'd take it because it looks like (laughs) a lot of fun. But, yeah, what are you going to do? At the the Thunderbird School? So are they go? Is that uh, are the Thunderbirds go there? God. So (laughs) I would have brought my space camp jumper if I could zip it up past my navel, but that's a non-starter nowadays. So (laughs) glad you can still wear yours. Oh, yeah. Laugh it up, Ant. All right. So, hey, Tarek. Yes, Rod. Yes, Rod. I have a, a joke. Oh, I'm all ears. Scariest thing yet. <laughs> Actually, this is kind of a, a it, it's not an ask and respond. It's a standard one-liner. A hydrazine molecule walks into an, into an iridium-lined bar and says, this ought to be a hot time. <laughs> it's a physics joke. an engineer joke. It's a physics joke. Yeah, okay, let's try another one. What is so that was from Eric Wingert, by the way. This this one is not. What does Earth say to tease the other planets? What? I don't know. You guys have no life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Wait. it. It's a pun. No, it should it's be a pun. Okay. <laughs> well, as always, we invite you to join the silly squad and send us your best or worst space jokes. And I gotta say, we're we're getting more, so this is working. So don't be shy. If you're going to write us, send us your, your best shot. doesn't have to be good. It just has to be a joke. And don't forget, do us a solid. And make sure to like, subscribe, and all the other podcast things that you could do to uh, show your love. Because it's important that uh, people know that we're having a good time here. All right. So, we have some headlines. That's right. That's right. We have, hold on. 
<laughs> another lunar eclipse before Halloween. I'm sorry, lunar another, eclipse. Cool. Another another lunar eclipse. What other lunar eclipse did you see? No, eclipses come in pairs. There's when you're my eclipse. age, you've seen lots of them. And but, then there's but for a, normal people, yeah. And there's a lunar eclipse. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the season for spookiness and watching this the moon. That's true. Get a, get a yeah. bite, getting you know out of it, even if it's a little one, is pretty exciting. This uh, uh, this is kind of the last eclipse of the year. So if you missed. The lunar eclipse earlier this year or the other two solar eclipses. This is like your last hurrah. And, uh, and you know, unfortunately for the Western Hemisphere, which is, you know, the United States, North America, etc. This, uh, this lunar eclipse won't be visible to us, but it will be visible to basically everyone in the Eastern oh, Hemisphere. So wait, it's when you say not visible, is this partial to us or not at all? No, it's not at all. Well, maybe what? in New York, you might catch the beginning. Yeah, the, 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 the difference between like a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse in terms of visibility is profound, you know, basically in a lunar eclipse, wherever you can see the moon, then you can usually see the lunar eclipse because like the whole right. side of the, the planet is facing right. the moon. So during this, why not this, this one, well, this eclipse is going to be happening at three in the afternoon, Eastern time. So oh. lunchtime, your, uh, you know, for, for folks in, in California, uh, which means of course that the moon is on the other side of the planet. What that does mean though, is that people in the Eastern hemisphere, uh, from Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, they're going to get a pretty good show. This is a partial uh, lunar eclipse, so it's not going to be a blood moon or anything like that. That would be cool for Halloween, but it, it runs about like uh, about four hours, four or five hours or so. Uh, you know, starting at, at the three thirty-ish time frame Eastern time. Uh, what is that? In that's fifteen times twenty. Uh, 100 hours uh, GMT uh, and then wrapping up uh, around uh, seven o'clock. And then, uh, you know, you'll watch the moon get a little big dark spot on it and then that spot will fade away. Uh, and then hopefully that will close out your eclipse experience until April 8th, 2024, when we have a total solar eclipse across the United States. So, so ladies and gentlemen, Tarek Malik, ace news reporter to bring you the news of the hour that there will be an eclipse coming up shortly that you can't see. That's right. No. How exciting. This is, the best, this is the best thing. If you are an eclipse fan and you yes. really want to see it and you have nothing better to do on a Saturday afternoon, you can watch it live online, which is great. And of course, space.com will have it, but you can watch it from time and date uh, from um, uh, the virtual telescope project and a few others uh, starting around the 3.30 p.m. Eastern time frame running through about 626 is when it ends Eastern time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can watch it, you know, watch it all evolve in all the moon's glory. Or if you want to get a jump on it and adjust it to your time to be convenient, you can watch other eclipses as recorded on YouTube. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, that's not helpful. Next story, also from space.com. Oh. Shenzhou 17 launched from China, arrives at Tiangong Modular Space Station. Uh, that's right. So, so China launched this week their their new crew mission to the Tiangong Space Station, Shenzhou Seventeen. You had yeah. uh, three Taikonauts, as uh, as they call them. This is the youngest space station crew that China has ever launched. You've got uh, uh, Commander Tang Hongbo. He's forty eight. Uh, and and um, former two former former fighter pilots Tang uh, Shengji. And please forgive me if I'm uh, pronouncing these wrong. Uh, uh, and he's thirty four. And Jiang Jinlin, uh, thirty five. Uh, and they're going to start a six-month uh, mission to the space station. They're they're replacing the Shenzhou 16 crew, who, in another spooky coincidence, are returning to Earth on Halloween. Uh, and so, so they'll have to, you know, 
plunge through the atmosphere, fall out of space and, and land mm. uh, in Inner Mongolia uh, on their own um, their own um, adventure on that day. Uh, but this is really interesting because they, it was a really short flight, shorter than some of the recent ones. It was six and a half hours. So very, very quick. They've learned, I think, a lot from watching Russia pare down their uh, Soyuz and Progress flights. And so these right. last few flights have been going uh, much quicker than the original Senju flights to to Tiangong uh, itself, um, and you know it it seems like they're really maturing. And a few hours actually before the launch is when China traditionally announces the crew. So it's always really hush hush until it's it's getting ready for walkout. But there was like a news conference that was broadcast on CCTV, and the head of their space program said they feel that Tiangong now is ready to start working with international partners to have, I don't know if you want to call them guests or, 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 or collaborators, you know, that kind of a, a team up, uh, what basically like what we see on the international space station where uh, astronauts from, from ESA all work together with right. NASA and Japan and Russia, yada, 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 uh, that China is looking to have international partners come in, maybe pay for a seat, do a six month or a week long mission or fly up as one of these handover crews. Like we used to see a lot. And, uh, and that'll be interesting to see how it goes out because there were reports uh, a few years back about China working, you know, with the European space agency on the Mars 500 mission, uh, working with uh, Pakistan to train astronauts uh, for orbital flight and a few other partners. And so this seems like they're, they're maturing at the part of, space station operations to the point where they'll be able to host visiting countries and, and nations and expand their influence and their, their realm in space. So, All right. NASA, you better watch out. They're creeping up on you. And next up also for space.com Osiris Rex, despite our sample arriving a couple of weeks ago, if you want to take a look at it, you better bring a crowbar and a mallet. Yeah, this was a funny one where NASA kind of buried like the the real news behind the the good news, right? And the good news was, hey, we haven't even cracked open this sucker, uh, but we've got so much more asteroid material than we ever hoped to get, which means that in the outside of the capsule, they had more than the sixty milligrams or grams or whatever they were trying to get of of the asteroid sample. So that's great. The thing is, they can't crack open the sample right. capsule itself. Can't get it. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's these there's these two fasteners that are stuck on the sample sample container, and they can't undo them. And because they can't undo them, that means they can't open it up. Because they can't open it up, they can't get all of the juicy, um, the juicy bits of the uh, the asteroid inside the capsule itself. So they're they're kind of taking a a hard think about it to see like what they want to do. Um, it doesn't seem like it's an issue yet, but they really want to get those samples out. I mean, it's nice that yeah. they've got, uh, that they have, pardon me. It's nice. It's nice that they have, uh, ample, ample material more than like their mission kind of target parameter goal was, um, to work with now, which means that they have more to work with, uh, at NASA. They have more they can share around the world. Uh, but they really want to get those, those, those bigger samples that are inside the collection. And, and if you recall, it seems like NASA has been spoiled by like a uh, a collection of riches with this with this uh, uh, this mission. When they when they re- retrieved the samples from the asteroid Bennu in the first place, they they couldn't even get the capsule closed because there was a big rock stuck in the in the, in the little hatchet. Right. Right. <laughs> so it just seems like they've got so much. It's like um, it's like being being hungry and going to like a candy shop and just shoving your face full of like jelly beans or you know well now it's kind of like being stuck on a desert island with a single can of O'Nally's Irish stew and you don't have a can opener 
know? <laughs> yeah. So you just got to stare at this thing going, gosh, I wish I had a way to get this can open. Now it is NASA. I'm sure they'll figure out a way. I mean, they could always just cut the thing open uh, as long as they're, you know, they, they're, they're well, sure that they can. You know, Burke and I were talking about this because he's our, our resident uh, space enthusiast and expert around here. And one of the things that occurs to me is whatever tool you introduce in that environment, because you're talking about trying to keep these samples pristine at a molecular yeah. level, because they're going to be using, I imagine, a, a mass spectrometer and so forth to evaluate what's in there. So contamination is a huge problem. And I expect even which tool, which metal the tool is made of, and certainly if there's any oils or any deposits left from the manufacturing anything. I mean, they got to be perfectly clean before they introduce them in this environment or you permanently uh, mess up the sample, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and NASA has, you know, experience doing that. I mean, they they could bake it with the zero whatever radiation stuff and and cook yeah. it to high heaven and then, and then feel. It's a matter of like what you were saying there, doing that to the tool to get it as yeah. sterilized as possible and then transporting the tool in its sterilized form to wherever they're going to get to. Now they haven't even talked about that there. They seem like they, they've got more options uh, to mm -hmm. try to loosen the fasteners uh, one way or another. Uh, and so we'll just have to see how it I've got goes. it. Let's sand ant over to the lab and he can just put his arms in the little glove box. And with those big sweaty biceps of his that he slugs Leo in the arm with, he can just rip it open. While yeah. He does an MMA kind of roar. I tell you, Ant, there he is. Or, oh, yeah. Call me. Ant, yeah, he, he Give me a said, call. Says, I got you. <laughs> okay. You know, I also, I also don't know if they haven't banged it on the edge of the table yet to try to loosen it like mm. I do with all my jars, but we'll have to find out if they do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tarek's secret repair lifestyle. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for the headlines, and we'll be back in just a moment after this message with Scary Space Stuff. Don't go anywhere. This episode of This Week in Space is brought to you by Melissa, the contact data quality expert. This holiday season, we'll let Melissa help your business meet online shopping expectations, increase ROI, reduce waste and costs associated with lost and undeliverable packages, and improve your customers' overall satisfaction. The importance of early preparedness for retailers before the holiday season is indisputable. Here are some of Melissa's tips to help you get started. Start by cleaning out your contact data with Melissa's data cleansing solutions. All of your stale, outdated data gets replaced with verified, accurate information, such as replacing old addresses for people who have moved and adding new emails or phone numbers. Customers always want a seamless experience with efficient delivery. Make sure your business is meeting their expectations. Next day and two-day delivery implementation is in high demand, and Melissa ensures that addresses are verified and standardized at checkout with their autocomplete tool. Not only does having a verified address at checkout ensure the address is deliverable, but it also cuts down on keystrokes by up to 75%, making your customer's experience quicker and easier. And that's important. Offering bundles and cross-selling to existing customers is more cost-efficient than finding new ones. This holiday season is the perfect time for you to do this since customers are most likely shopping for others. Profiling your data can give you a better understanding of your customer base and best-selling products, which can help you create more effective marketing strategies. Matching and deduping your data will clean your database, allowing you to see a complete 360-degree view of each customer. This will also help you to better understand your customers, allowing for more personalized marketing and a better customer experience. Since 1985, Melissa has specialized in global intelligence solutions and contact data quality. Melissa continually undergoes independent security audits and is SOC 2, HIPAA, and GDPR compliant. 
Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Get started today with 1,000 records clean for free at melissa.com slash twit. That's melissa.com slash twit. Okay, I'm taking first position today. Well, I'm just that kind of guy. Um, but, I, you know, when I think of scary space occurrences, the one that really sticks with me because I experienced it as a very young man growing up, although not young as you guys that were not even zygotes at that point, is the Apollo 11 landing because that was truly a white nuggler. Now, it's important to preface this by saying we didn't see anything. That landing was only recorded on 16 millimeter film with a little camera up next to the lunar module window. This is uh, July 20th, 1969. It went down, so they didn't have a lot of, they certainly didn't have CCD television technology or any ability to trans to transmit it live during the landing. So um, it was just a radio show at that point, interspersed with comments from the reporters and so forth. And we weren't even hearing the NASA loop. We were just hearing the downlink from the lunar module. So just to set it up, this is Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, first lunar landing. They had made a couple of close passes before that, but never landed on the surface of the moon. It's about 15 minutes uh, once you uh, commit yourself to with the braking rockets to get down to the surface. And a lot didn't go quite as planned. So I, w- I don't want to say it went wrong because they had contingencies for most things. But this was the first time anybody had ever done this. And this is basically late 50s, early 60s technology being flown at the end of the 60s developed in less than a decade and the further i get from this event the harder it is for me to believe that it actually worked over and over <laughs> and over again with these landings because you're you're just barely out of the vacuum tube age for people who even know what vacuum tubes are and integrated circuits are a brand new thing computers still filled up rooms they nasa and mit figured out a way to jam their computer for the landing sequence had to be computerized you couldn't do it you you could override it manually but you'd never get down there manually you had to have the computer guiding you so and there's just a hundred things that were begging to go wrong with these two guys inside what is a very fragile if you've ever seen lunar module display somewhere it was just enough to get the job done um, so, so what, what happened? Well, they're, they're fighting against time because they've got a limited amount of fuel to get down the surface. Um, they have to descend to the proper rate to land more or less where they want to go. Cause you're coming in at a diagonal like that. And if you go too shallow, you're going to reshoot. If you go too steep, you're going to come down too hard and you, you don't want to hit the wrong part of the moon or land on the wrong part of the moon. You don't want to hit the moon at all. Oh, no, because <laughs> they have a defined <laughs> landing zone that they thought was going to work. So they had orbited a couple of times. They were they had shot tons of photographs. They knew pretty much where they wanted to go. But, it, you know, it's kind of a come-as-you-are party. You get what you get. So uh, you will hear, we're going to play some of the um, audio sequence from this. If you're watching the video, you'll, you'll see the video. Um, this is the mission control loop. So you hear not only Armstrong and Aldrin, but you hear Gene Kranz and all the guys in mission control. A couple of things to listen for are, I still marvel at this. So they're halfway down or maybe a third down. Neil Armstrong says in this tone of voice, we have a 1202 computer alarm. Then a few minutes later, uh, give me an indication on that 1202 computer alarm. Like he's asking, <laughs> you know, did you put premium or regular gas in my car? So on the way down, their computer, which is very primitive but advanced for its time, locked up 
And the reason that happened was it was getting too much data because they had made a mistake in leaving. It wasn't the astronaut's mistake. I think it was a mission profile or plan mistake. They left the rendezvous radar on the lunar module on because they wanted to have that heated up because it had, this is in these days, electronics had to warm up in case they aborted on the way down and had to drop the lower stage and fire the upper stage to get back to the orbit and command module with Mike Collins in it. They wanted that radar ready to go. Unfortunately, having it warmed up meant that it was seeing, sending data of just looking up at space into this very primitive computer as well as the radar that's looking down at the ground, sending all this data in. So these two things are conflicting and there's uh, phase lock differences and all kinds of other stuff. Bottom line is the computer was getting overloaded and it said, I've had enough. I'm shutting down and restarting. And that's a bad moment when you're hurtling towards the lunar surface. So obviously I could talk about this for a long time. (laughs) I think I bored you enough. So let's roll the video. And if you don't mind, I'll kind of walk you through it. So as they're starting their descent, the radio contact is so bad, Gene Kranz, who you're hearing now, almost cancels the landing because the radio is just really scrambled. Okay, retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. Ginsey. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom. We're going to continue PDI. Altitude 40,000. And Eagle Houston, we got data dropouts. You're still looking good. Program alarm. Looking good to us. Over. 1202. 1202. So this is the computer telling them, hey, I'm overloaded. I got to shed some tasks that aren't essential to getting you down safely and reboot. So, but, but at the time, nobody on the ground knew what that was. And it took a few minutes before one of the mission controllers, a guy named Steve Bales, said, I know what that is. It's okay. Keep going. So at this point, Eagle, they realize they're coming in long, they call it. So basically, when they detached from the command module, there was enough air left in the tunnel between the two spacecraft that it popped a little bit like a champagne cork, and it gave them extra velocity. So they're actually pretty soon going to be passing over the area where they wanted to land. And when they're coming down where they thought they were supposed to be, Armstrong sees a huge crater and then a field with huge boulders on it, which is not a good place to land this little tinfoil spacecraft. So he had to keep hovering. We're go. Same type. We're go. Altitude 16. At this point. The computer's acting up a little bit. They're still getting data, but the best way to conduct the landing at this point is to have Buzz Aldrin staring at the computer readouts, not looking out the window, but staring at the computer readouts, telling Neil, here's how fast we're moving, here's uh, how far we are from the ground, and, and other information. Then Armstrong's staring out the window. He's taking manual control now, and he's going to land it with a joystick. Thirteen forward. Eleven forward, coming down nicely, two hundred feet. Four and a half down. Five and a half down. Put in sixty six and a half down. Five and a half down. Nine forward. Good. And twenty feet. 
So the second you're going to hear, 30 seconds. 5%. That's 60 seconds until they're sufficiently low on fuel, they have to abort. So they end up landing with about 30 seconds worth of gas left, which is pretty close. Thirty feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. Thirty feet, two and a half down, face shadow. Four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half, thirty seconds forward. At this point, there's so much dust being kicked up from lunar surface by the rocket on the bottom, they can't even see what they're doing. They're just watching the shadow converge with the bottom of the limb and hoping that means they're in the right okay, spot. APA at a descent. Auto descent. Coast control, both auto descent. Engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh. Everybody cheer. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, twang. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. So I probably listened to this a hundred times. I still get sweaty palms realizing how close they were. And what they don't tell you is as you're nearing the lunar surface, there is a point at which you're too close to abort because if you drop the lower stage, it takes a second for the upper stage to light and you're just going to pancake down into the dirt and be so many square miles of tinfoil. So it was a much closer thing than we were led to believe for a long time. And, um, I just, you cannot quantify the kind of ice water running through the veins kind of guys that could do that <laughs> kind of stuff. So hats off, and I've indulged myself for too long. So Tarek, over to you. I, I was going to say, I th- that I, I, see, I see that video, and I just see a bunch of highly specialized, very professional people doing something daring and doing it right, right? But to you, it's yeah. a spooky, spooky, scary story. Uh, but I guess, how old were you? How old were you when you saw it, if you don't mind? I was, it? I think, 11. All right. All right. Old enough to know what the risks were going to be. Uh, yeah. Basically. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah. such a, a nerd. I was a fanatic about this. So as much time as Ant spends reading and watching sports, I was spending all my time uh, reading Life magazine and every book about space flight I could get my hands on. And you can imagine which <laughs> one of us probably got more dates. But that's another story. <laughs> Well, so you were picking a lot of spaceflight things for your the, your scary stories, you know, uh, list, and I, I don't I don't know if we're going to get through all of them because man, we got a lot. And I, I was picking like places in space or like well, things that's in how space. we set like, up, yeah. So like give us Ast- your scariest place, like Astro. I'm, I'm going to start with with basically a, a, a thing, which are black holes. I I think black holes are the freakiest thing, and this is not because, or maybe it is because, when I was like a little kid, I had a like a poster of the 1979 Disney movie, the black hole. And it uh-huh. absolutely scared the living daylights out of me. Like the whole thing what scared or, like, me was having to watch it more than once. Cause it was so wretched, it, but yeah, it, it's still, I think it holds up, but that's just me. I mean, I have like the special collector's edition uh, of, of the black hole and I'm not going to recount the plot, but everyone should watch it at least once because it's a lot of fun, but it was my first introduction to what black holes were. And I thought it was really, really creepy. And then I found out what black holes really are, which is, you know, on the small side, something eight to 10 times the mass of the sun that is so massive at the end of the star's life that it collapses in on itself and creates like a hole 
quote unquote, in space and time that not like not even light can 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 um, can escape. And we, we can't even get close to it. Like in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, you know, spoiler alert. They, they end drive up, on by. Yeah. They go they go through one. But no, like these black holes. I mean, it's like instant death. Every little thing. I mean, first of all, like there again, there's the gravity. Like it's so much. It's so strong. It, it can't like light can't even get out of it. Which means that if you were going to fall in your little spacesuit towards one, the gravity will just keep increasing like the closer part of your body towards it and stretch you out over and over and over again until you're like super thin spaghetti. They call it spaghettification, which I right. thought was horrifying enough. But then time slows down because of the time right. dilation th- effect of all of that gravity. So then it's happening over eons. And it just makes me it makes me wonder if that actually happens to you. Can you feel it all? Are you thinking during the whole time is it actually like is it like a millennia of you getting stretched over and well, over in theory you, you never cross the event horizon right but no this is just approaching it you're approaching it and and like the gravity is so so strong at the event horizon there's apparently like a heat wall that you get uh, there and you've you've survived sp- spaghettification and you get like vaporized instantly oh my god Right, well, but so imagine then, up till then, you and you and me getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier as we go. I'd be like, "Yeah, this is great," okay. and then no, boom, right? You're 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 yeah. gone. Um, and then of course the gravity, you know, super 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 strong. And then no one knows what goes through it. I mean, like in in Star Trek, you go through it and you end up on the other side of the the yeah. the universe, right? But I mean, there is this Discovery article. I think we've got uh, if you're if you're watching the the video on the, the YouTube's, you can see it now. They got four ways it can kill you. You've got the, the spaghettification which we've talked about. Then you've got the accretion disk where basically all this stuff falling towards the black hole as it's falling, it's accelerating and it's heating up and heating up and heating up. So then uh, you, you, you get, you know, like cooked in, in that part of it, then black holes and even the small ones, they have these, um, or not, not the small ones, but the, 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 the one at the center of our, of our galaxy, the supermassive a star, I think is how you pronounce it. They, they shoot these massive jets, you know, off from their poles. You know, the, it's, it's, it's outside the event horizon because, you know, it's not affected by that light, not, not escaping thing. And that thing can fry you, too. It's a plasma jet that you don't want it aimed right at you. And then, of course, there's the mm. firewall that we talked about. And it just they just seem like really unpleasant things. And I'm fairly certain that in the David Brin sci-fi book, Earth, a black hole like passes through the earth and like destroys us all, you know? Uh, so, David Brin's in, such or, a, a chuckly kind of or guy. Or in, yeah. in Seven Eves, that other sci-fi book where the moon crumbles apart, they, they like a little tiny miniature black hole uh, passes through the moon and like destroys it. You know, and that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you, you don't want to think about how small we as people are in the vastness of space, that this stuff is like out there and yeah. that it could just happen at any time. Now, black holes are huge. And so... We would know if there was one near us because they can detect it from the gravitational influence of others. We even have a first picture of a black hole from 2019. So, so we've seen them and we know that they exist. Um, and there isn't one near us, but it's still just a, a, a scary, scary thing that's out there. And yet, like, like a wreck on the freeway, we just can't help but go look for them with our space telescopes and try to see more of them, you know? So that was my big pick. For the for the for the my, my big scary thing that's out there, I got more, but that was like oh, the course. big one. So. Well, that's a pretty groovy way to to, to go. Um, and we will be back with the story of the Russian space Stay Puff Marshmallow Man after the short break. Don't go anywhere. So 
Flash, March 1965, Alexei Leonov does the first spacewalk. This is with the, uh, see, at that point, it wasn't Soyuz. It was, I think, still Voskhod, right? Voskhod, yeah. No, it was Vostok, yeah, because it was second flight. So, um, But it had two, two people on it, right? It had two, two people. So Voskhod was two people. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, Vostok was one. You're right. So that was, anyway, so they're up in orbit. And it's time to pull off yet another Soviet triumph by beating the United States. They had already beat us to uh, first orbit launch. Now they're going to beat us to a spacewalk. So Alexei Leonov uh, gets all suited up in his EBA suit. And they, which very ingenious, um, they had an airlock. So for Gemini, the American side, they just vented the capsule into a vacuum and opened the doors and climbed out. And that came later. On the Soviet side, they actually had an airlock, an inflatable airlock that expanded beyond where the hatch was without opening the hatch. And then with that sealed, then they open the hatch. Leonov climbs out and goes out and does about 12 minutes of drifting outside the capsule. Now, these first early spacewalks was nothing except climbing out and just kind of hanging out, right? They weren't they weren't doing a lot. They, they might give them a couple like on the American side with Ed White. They had a little gas maneuvering gun and stuff. Basically, it was like, go out, change the film kick the tires, uh, you know, check the oil and, and back in you go. So he's out there for about eight of the 12 minutes. And, you know, being the first time, you've got a lot of variables. There's space temperature you got to worry about. There's suit integrity. There's getting the hatch closed uh, before and after and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff that, that to worry about. What nobody had planned for was the regulation of the inflation pressure of the suit. So the longer he's out there, and again, he's in a hard vacuum in a pressure suit, this suit's actually starting to overinflate a bit, and it's getting stiffer and harder, and it's hard to move. He feels his fingertips pulling away from the gloves. He feels his feet pulling away from the boots. So it's almost like he's shrinking inside the suit. It's like an Alice in Wonderland thing, right? Because the suit's getting bigger and bigger and more and more rigid. And they didn't and plan they, for that, is what you're saying. They no, didn't. not at all. Yeah. And, he, and that's why you see on the Russian suits now, they got all these straps that sort of restrain how it can expand and so forth. Back in these days, they hadn't thought that up yet. So he's out there thinking, uh, I got to climb through this six or eight foot cloth tunnel to get back in the spacecraft. And I can't even move my hands. <laughs> so he's trying to figure out what to do. He probably should have called mission control and said, Hey, I'm having a real problem here. But being a tough Russian, he thought, eh, they're not here. They don't know what to do. So he cracked the vent valve on the suit <laughs> Which seems like an obvious thing, but you're opening up your spacesuit to the killing pure vacuum of space, and the other cosmonauts going, uh, "What's going on?" So he <laughs> vented the suit down just enough to not get the bends. Managed to climb back inside. Then they couldn't get the hatch closed; it was stuck, and I guess it was hanging up on this cloth airlock. Oh, but they man. finally managed to get the hatch closed and repressurize the capsule, and all was good until it was time to re-enter. So the Soyuz or, or these old capsules had an orbital module and a descent module. And you're supposed to disconnect from the orbital module and come home with a descent module, which like any other capsule has a heat shield. Oops, a cable got got stuck and the orbital module starts coming in with the descent module as they're reentering, <laughs> being dragged behind it, pulling them off axis. So now their heat shield's not facing the right direction. And these are the early days. It doesn't take a lot to kill you, right? And if your heat shield's not pointing down, you're having a really bad day. But finally, they were able to, uh, the, the cable burned through. They're able to separate. 
but it did put them about 1400 miles past the landing zone they were planned for. And uh, they were stuck there overnight in, I think it was minus 22 degrees uh, without cold weather gear. So one of the, the Soviets finally were able to to locate them. Soviet military dropped some boots and some food and some cognac. I thought that was classy, a bottle of cognac. And they they had already blown the hatch, so they couldn't put the hatch back up. So they had to climb in and shiver in this capsule <laughs> overnight until uh, it, locals finally came and got them the next day. Is, is that the one with the bears? Too, where they were like bears that's not them. the one famous for the bears that was that was later um but they did this after this they did start carrying a firearm on yeah. on russian missions to fight off the bears just in case yeah there's one on the soyuz right now right yeah well actually i think they might have stopped doing that uh because they they've got their command and control down better but mm-hmm. yeah for years there was a firearm right next to the international space station that, that nobody wants to talk about and both the, in a lot of cases, both the Russians and the Americans were qualified on it. So wow. that's my next scary story. I love the one you're about to do. This is one of my favorites. Well, I have to apologize. My my computer just seized up. <laughs> I'm trying to get to get back to the page. To well, this the window. This is Gamma my horror story. <laughs> Gamma ray bursts. Yeah. So, so occasionally you get these stars sending these big radioactive signals at earth, which is a bad day if you're on the side of earth facing the star, right? Yeah. So, so gamma ray bursts, I remember, you know, years ago, NASA launched, um, the Fermi gamma ray observatory, gamma, you know, mm. the, 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 to look for these ones. And, and I was really excited about it. And some other folks were like, why do we even care about this? It's not even going to take pictures of, of the universe, but it's looking for the most powerful explosions in um in the universe and in fact last year in october of 2022 is what scientists call the boat the brightest of all time it was this gamma ray burst that that they 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 saw and they had never seen anything like it they say it was like a one in ten thousand year event and the reason that i find them to be particularly horrifying uh is because Again, biggest, biggest explosion in, 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 you know, known to, to humanity, uh, that brightest of all time, it was in a distant galaxy, right? And then, and it was still the brightest thing that we'd have had ever seen. And if it was, you know, a thousand light years away, that's not close, you know, to us, like the nearest star is like four light years away. If there was one of these explosions a thousand light years away, and it was just happened to be aimed at our planet, it would strip off the outer layers of our of our planet it could cause an ice age if it was closer than that it could strip off the, the planet. atmosphere you mean yeah, yeah. The, the, no it would it would mess up the ozone layer right it would it would strip yeah. off all those layers we would still have some atmosphere but you know 440 million years ago scientists think that a gamma ray burst might have triggered an ice age on the planet just because it happened to be aimed at our at our earth you know <laughs> at that at that point in time that's stuff that we mm. have like no you know we were talking about black holes and and just like how it keeps you up at night that there's these things. Well, I worry a lot more about gamma rays <laughs> than I do black holes. Yeah, it was the best. But the thing is, we know that these gamma ray bursts are out there because you know that NASA has mapped them. Um, uh, you know, across the board, knowing where they they track, they can actually. There's networks on the ground where they look, they scan the sky for these things, and if they see one, it like lets everyone else know, so that they can, they can all start um, 
uh, looking at it too. And, and man, you know, something close like that, that just zooms out, even a solar flare would be a bad day for us, but man, that would cook the planet. And I just, I worry sometimes. Well, about and that. all our meat. And all so, our meat. Yeah. So <laughs> Mr. Stuff, Ant Pruitt, next time you're thinking about how important sports are compared to space, <laughs> I just want you to remind me how many times football saved us from total extinction. Just saying, just saying, you know. Look here. I'm cool with gamma rays if it's gonna if it's gonna let me look like this dude here, man. Uh, isn't that the Incredible Hulk? <laughs> what is that? Oh, isn't that the Incredible Hulk? That's so, wow, you are fast, man. Look so at you. If, if if gamma rays are out there and gonna have me look all swole like the Incredible Hulk, bring them on. You already look like the Incredible Hulk. What are you talking about? <laughs> wow, I made him speechless. That's pretty. <laughs> okay. He's not green though. Well, angry. no, but but I'm. But he's always angry, right? I'm no. Green with envy every time I see him flexing <laughs> his, his pecs. All right, uh, my next one is uh, Gemini Eight. So this is a little, a little arcane, but for for those who remember or have ever read about the Gemini program, was the step between our first launches, which was the single person Mercury capsule, and the Apollo three man capsule that went to the moon. So Gemini was a two place capsule. Design, designed primarily to fly for about two years and test out things like rendezvous, docking, uh, spacewalks, in case you had to manually walk from the capsule to the lunar module or back the other direction, things like that. They thought they're going to need for the for the mission to the moon. So while the Apollo capsule and uh, lunar lander were being developed, Jim and I was doing all this work, launching every six weeks sometimes. Um, so they were really going gangbusters. So one of the things they wanted to do, they they had the Gemini capsule, which launched on a Titan. Actually, it was a repurposed ICBM, but instead of a nuclear warhead, they had a crew on top. And uh, there was a target vehicle called the Agena that launched on an Atlas. So you'd launch the target vehicle. And then if that worked, you'd launch the astronauts. And they would uh, tag up in orbit. Dock, undock, practicing, boosting to higher orbits, all this stuff that they were going to need if they were ever going to get to the moon and be able to do the docking and undocking lunar orbit. So in March of 1966, uh, Gemini 8 8 launches after the Agena uh, target vehicle had had launched successfully. And the Agena was kind of troublesome, so they wanted to make sure that worked. Um, And in fact, a few months later, Gemini 6A had uh, rendezvoused but not been able to dock with an Agena because it had exploded. So they were just able to rendezvous with where it would have been uh, and had other other problems. So th- it's getting critical. They're only going to have 12 Gemini flights. They really have to prove this is going to work. So Neil Armstrong's uh, flying with Dave Scott in the, in the right seat. And they're chasing down for the next six hours after launch. They chase down the Agena stage. They rendezvous, they dock, they undock, they dock again, and everything's going well. But then after about uh, half an hour, Armstrong notices there's a little bit of a roll, and he hadn't done anything. So he's like, what's going on? And so they call Mission Control. And it was, you know, this is so far back there, you didn't have constant coverage as you were in orbit. You'd have coverage for a few minutes, and you'd go out of touch, and you go back in touch, depending on whether you were going over Hawaii or Australia, or the U.S., where the tracking stations were. So it was all pretty primitive. So they're going in and out of contact, and uh, they have a problem. So Mission Control says, well, you know, try turning off the Agena, because we think it's probably 
uh, one of the boosters is firing, pushing off axis. So they enter the computer command to to tell the Agena to shut itself down. That doesn't help. And they're starting to speed up. And now they're starting to tumble. So finally, Armstrong says, look, we got to disconnect from this thing before it torques us so much that we can't get free of it and we can't go home. So Scott agrees. So they undock and suddenly they start spinning at about two or three times the rate they were before. So they realize things are much worse now because there's a stuck thruster on the Gemini capsule. And we're talking, they're they're spinning like uh, once or twice a second at this point. It's really fast. And at this point, pretty soon they're going to black out. And once you black out in a fast spin like that, because you're in orbit, and you're in a vacuum, it's just going to spin for the next thousand years until it loses momentum. And because there's no atmosphere to slow it down, actually wouldn't a thousand years eventually <laughs> re-enter, but they'd be dead, you know. Um, so this was a bad thing. So Armstrong's trying everything he can. He says to Scott, OK, you try it. They're trying to fire the thrusters. They don't know at this point that there's a stuck thruster on, but they're starting to suspect it. And finally, the only way he was able to get the thing to stop tumbling. And by the way, for most of this, they're out of touch with the ground. And when they finally do get back in contact, what Mishkatol is hearing is that we're in this violent tumble and we're about to black out. So nothing anybody on the ground could do. But Armstrong finally decides, okay, he's going to fire the reentry system. And that is powerful enough that it stopped, stopped the tumble. But at that point, you have to come home because Not once you open work. those valves, they're going to start leaking fuel. And you have to make sure you have enough fuel to slow down to come back. So they do an emergency reentry and end up, I think they came down the South Pacific and bobbed around for hours until they were picked up. But it was a close thing and it could have easily been the first casualties in space. And mm -hmm. it was uh, just by grace of calm. I mean, imagine spinning at that rate of speed. And keeping your wits about you. You went to space camp, Tark. I went yeah, to space camp. I, they put you on that multi-axis trainer. I, and I was see, on that thing. I get seasick on the train. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I was on that tumbling trainer thing for a minute and almost barfed in front of a nun with a bunch of kids from a classroom. So no, I mean like the actual train. <laughs> I get sick on the train, well, let alone. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So um, so yeah, that was that was my scariest moment from 1966. And uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Tark's next scary disaster place. Scary place. Stay mm -hmm. with us. Well, I have slain, Rod, my uh, my nemesis that is the the Google, Google Sheets. The Google Sheets and the Chrome thing. Yeah, I was able good. to add a, while you were talking about Gemini 8 and the, and the horror that I was able to get out of the of, of Chrome and get back into it. So So now, I mean... From like the, 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 the depths of like daring astronauts, I was thinking about like a really spooky place that I haven't been to, but I would, I would, I was thinking about what would be a great place, like a haunted house of, um, to come again. This is Pam Melroy from NASA, oh! which oh my gosh. is an unexpected pleasure. Oh, hello. Come take a seat for a moment. Oh my gosh. How about that, huh? Oh, okay, wow, now. anything can happen on this show. Now, this yeah. is epic. Okay, all right. Well done, Mr. Powell. Well done, Mr. Powell. But, uh, yeah, Rod runs one of the uh, coolest space podcasts uh, and does yeah. an Astro Magazine for the uh, National yes. Space Society. Yes, yeah. Welcome to our meeting. So we're talking about, this is our Halloween special, we're talking about scariest occurrences and places in space. 
Oh, so I just got done narrating the near disaster of Gemini 8 when they were in their big tumble. Absolutely. And Tarek, what were you about? The co-host is Tarek Malik from Face.com. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so Colonel, what were you about to talk about? It's, it's nice to see you again. I'm feeling a little self-conscious, Colonel, because I, I know that that you are, of course, a real-life astronaut and um, and deputy administrator of NASA. And here I am in my space camp outfit. <laughs> oh, stand up and show us. So Dana. I was just admiring it. <laughs> so I, yeah, I can I can get up a little bit so you can see here. But at least it says my name on it, though. So I want to see that. how it fits in the middle. Stand up a little higher. I'd rather not, Rod. <laughs> I actually don't have a lot of room to st- to, to work in this corner of my office. So. <laughs> That's a likely experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, well, welcome, welcome. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I was actually going to talk about the exoplanet trust too. Before you continue, uh, Tark, did you have any? Oh my goodness! Moments or scrapes? Oh You're... yes, absolutely. Oh, can you tell us? Yeah, they, I think probably the one that um, definitely did not get a whole lot of sleep uh, on my last mission. Uh, we were um, relocating a solar array and deploying it on the space station. It was uh, STS one. We'd had a little trouble with that solar array. It was the original solar array. It was tough getting out. It was tough going in. And I, I asked before we flew, I'm like, are we going to have any trouble with this? And they said, no, no, it's all a thermal issue. We figured it all out. Well, uh, apparently in all the beating on it that we'd done to get it into bed and then uh, deployed in the first place and then back into its box, when we went to deploy it, it got snarled, uh, big, nasty snarl, and it started to rip. And uh, that's probably one of the most heartrending moments I've ever had was we the solar array was deploying. Peggy Whitson, Dan Tani, and I were doing it, and I'm looking on the camera, and there's like this sharp glare of the sun, and I'm like, uh oh, I can't see it, and I'm about ready to declare stop, and then it comes out, and I see this big rip in the solar array. So, you know, I, Peggy was controlling the, the, and I was like, abort, 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 abort. <laughs> She's like pressing the button as hard as she can. And we had to send um, a spacewalker out to this fully electrified solar array right. uh, to stitch it up without touching it because it was fully electrified and it would fry the electronics in his suit, which would be a problem because he was Big more guy. than 30 minutes away from the airlock, which is anyway. So um, I did not get a lot of sleep the night before that happened. And I, I think the one moment that my heart was really in my mouth was when the other spacewalker um, – Doug Wheelock, he was sitting at the base of the solar array looking up at Scott, and his job was to make sure that there was always clearance, that if Scott was stitching it up, he was not coming close to touching it with his gloves or the, the arm or any part of it. And he yelled, look out. And of course, I'm looking straight at it. And I'm like, what are you saying? And so Scott looks down and I see through his helmet camera that a huge billow is going through the solar array from when he pull put it the first stitch in and then kind of tugged it and it went all the way to the bottom and it came back up and uh so scott just basically he had a an electrically insulated tool so he held it out in front of him and leaned back as far as he could and in the in the camera of uh, his hands went out of sight in this big billow and i'm like oh my gosh is scott electrocuted or not you know yeah not a, not a happy day but um anyway he figured it out and we finished it up and came back in, but it was a little scary. Now, what kind of voltage amperage is going through that? It's 120 volts DC. So the expectation was probably not that it would kill him, 
Uh, it could it could be very painful and do a lot of damage. But more importantly, it would have fried every electronic in the suit, which is all his life support. Yeah. yeah. Gulp. Gulp. Oh, yeah. Top yes. that, Mr. Malik. Yeah, well, I can't. But I, we had a little bit of a hiccup, but just to, to, to let everyone know, that was STS-120, right, uh, Colonel? And that was back in 2007. I remember monitoring that from from space.com HQ, and yeah. it was super scary, too, uh, to watch. <laughs> it was super scary. My husband was actually in the control room with Scott's wife, and he said it was one of those moments when Scott went to put in the first stitch he said it was one of those moments where, you know, they're sitting in the in the little room in the back of mission control. And he said literally every person in the control room stood up. You know, it was kind of like one of those moments. So, wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, and this is on top of having to launch and reenter, which is frightening enough, if you ask me. So, yeah, I mean, cool. you know, they knew what they were doing and it was controlled, but there's always a little bit of risk and you yeah. you have to be. Yeah, really careful that your story kind of reminds me of the Skylab repair mission where they went yes. up with certain plans. But yes, Pete Conrad being Pete Conrad kind of. Oh, that's an amazing did it my way. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I can also say that our mission was right around this time of year. Yeah. So happy Halloween to everyone. Thank you. <laughs> well, it was such an unexpected pleasure to have you roll in. This yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, right. Greg. Good to see you all. One of those 34 unread messages is probably mine, but okay. <laughs> That's actually on Slack. So I, sorry, I wasn't watching my text, but no problem. All right. All right. Great to see you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, help. Colonel. Thank you. Well, Raj and, and the Colonel and Colonel Melroy are, 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 are wrapping things up there. I'll, I'll just share one of the scariest oh. shuttle missions that I had. Uh, for everyone. And actually it was STS-126. And it was actually around this time in 2008. And it was undocking day. And the reason that it was scary was not because of anything happening in space, but it's because my wife went into labor in the middle of undocking. And I had no idea like what to do. <laughs> and, and my daughter ended up being born uh, on that. I was home with my wife, obviously, for the whole thing. But, uh, but that was like my big scary mission uh, <laughs> that, that I had. It is and, um, scary. Yeah, I, that is a scary story. It, it was. It was. It was because I learned how unprepared I was for for everything, and, and I didn't even have to watch that worked the time contractions, and, and and it was so so uh, so so frustrating. But my wife is a trooper, and my daughter is fourteen now, uh, and doing great things. So. <laughs> So it all worked out. You, it did. you think about how to how to you said you were unprepared, but there's life has a way of preparing you without you knowing it, right? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, I'll 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 wrap I'll wrap up um with um with one kind of haunting pick. Uh aunt actually. Oh my speaking of my daughter, I just heard the front door open and now she's coming inside. So <laughs> but um aunt, I, I wanted to ret to I, I wanted to pick like the spookiest place uh that I could I could find. Oh boy. Uh, that we know of right now. Yeah. And, and so there is this exoplanet called Tress, T-R-E-S, 2B. And it was discovered back in 2006 by uh, the Kepler Space Club, by scientists using the Kepler Space Telescope that was just kind of looking for these alien planets out there uh, by seeing, you know, at, what happens when the planet kind of crosses in front of the starlight and they see the starlight dip. And that's how they were able to find a lot of these planets, 5,000 plus uh, or all uh, at this point in time, and uh, and so this planet Tress B, and I think there's a there's a link uh, on line 44 there um, 
uh, Aunt, uh, if, um, if, 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 if it works, I'm not sure if it'll work or not. Um, but, um, uh, this planet is 702 light years away and it is darker than coal. Basically, if you were able to stand on, you know, or, or stand in the sky of this planet, you wouldn't be able to see anything. It'd be like super, super dark because of this. Its atmosphere is so pitch black. And that was if you could survive the lava hot air on this planet. So the, the, the air itself is so hot that it would like melt your face off, I think. And it's a gas giant. So there really isn't uh, a, a surface to stand on either. It's like 1.46 times the mass of Jupiter. But so, so you're, you're floating in this Jupiter sky, desperately trying to fend off this lava hot air. They think that the air could be so hot, it might even have this kind of ghostly, blood, bloody glow to it. So if it wasn't pitch black, which I just think is super scary to be on an alien planet, you know, with not to be able to see anything at all, it, 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 you would be able to see just the glow of the red lava sky around you. Um, and it's just, it's just, you know, a nice, interesting uh, uh, thought about these, these kind of spooky haunted places out there. I mean, these planets where it rains glass or it rains metal, you know, or it's just like one giant lava, like hellish landscape. And, and this was, I think, the one that I thought was the spookiest out there. And will we ever get to see it one day? Probably not. Probably not. Because it's, it's again, it's 702 light years away, uh, way out there in the deepest depths of space. And, uh, uh, but man, it's kind of spooky to think about. So uh, Again, as the resident space simpleton that knows absolutely nothing. Uh, but you appreciate us. I, I, I. I do appreciate you all. So this is why I pop in from time to time and ask questions like, um, what the heck is an exoplanet? Can you break that no, down? It's an alien planet. Yeah. An exoplanet is an alien planet. Well, the alien planet. planet's a little broad. It's, the, it's any planet outside our solar system. Our solar okay. system. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. around another star. Okay. Thank and you. And I had Pam Melroy tell you, but, but she left. That was, that was, that was a surprise. Why is why is NASA photobombing our podcast, right? <laughs> podcast bombing? You should be so lucky, right? I'll take it. I'll take it. Yeah. We should we should we should, we should do that every week, right? <laughs> I, wish. I only met her once before, but what a delightful lady. She's yeah. really really cool. Second second woman ever to pilot and then command a space shuttle. Uh uh Colonel Pamelroy. Well, and now so now currently uh she's the the deputy administrator of right. NASA. Yeah. Yeah, so that uh, we have a lot of other stuff, but once again, <laughs> we talked ourselves out of time, haven't that's, we? That's right. That's right. Well, you know, I tell you, uh, space is vast and uh, our time is not. And so, <laughs> very uh, cleverly put. Uh, but I tell you, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 uh, you know, Halloween is coming up. And, uh, and, and I, I would just say that, um, uh, I hope everyone has a nice, safe one. Like, if you've got kids, that the kids get a lot of treats. Mm. Uh, and uh, and keep watching the skies because uh, I'm expecting NASA to release some kind of holiday, um, some kind of holiday spooky picture from the Hubble Space Telescope anytime soon. Mm. So. so we missed uh, one. Of, we had a couple of favorite stories. We have to save for next time we do this. Uh, this the scariness of shuttle turbo pumps, which are running at you know seventy thousand RPMs instantly spinning up if the slightest speck of something goes wrong or they get a crack kaboom 130 missions they never lost an engine uh just incredible re-entry is its own kind of terror 
you had this great story about uh, the astronaut that almost drowned in his spacesuit, which That's wasn't right. that long ago. Yeah, yeah, back in 2013. So I had the fire and on mirror. So I guess we'll the we'll heat have- death of the universe. That's going to just like get us all in the end, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're much more in touch with your scary side than I am. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today for our first annual Scariest Space Stuff special. And happy Halloween to you all. As Tarek said, I hope you have good trick-or-treats and get lots of fun stuff. Uh, Tarek, where are you hiding, hiding your spookiest of achievements these days? Well, I am at space.com as always. And uh uh, you can find me on the Twitter at Tarek J. Malik, getting very excited uh, uh, for this weekend because I test for my second degree brown belt in Taekwondo. So let's hope I pass. Fingers crossed. So, uh, but that's what I'll be doing uh, for the foreseeable. As so many fathers would say, only second degree. <laughs> um, that's that's cool. And of course, you can always find me at pilebooks.com and the frightening at astromagazine.com. Don't forget to drop us a line at twist at twit.tv. That's T-W-I-S at twit.tv. Send us your comments, suggestions, insults. But whatever you send us, you better send us a space joke, too, because we always <laughs> welcome your comments, ideas. Cost of entry. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't forget to check out space.com, websites in the name, and, of course, the National Space Society and NSS.org, who's putting on this function that got us Pam Melroy today. Um, good places to satisfy your spacely cravings. New episodes of this podcast published every Friday on your favorite podcatcher. So make sure to subscribe, tell your friends, give us reviews, thumbs up, five stars. We'll take whatever we can get. And of course, don't forget you can get all the great programming on the Twit Network ad free and some extras you can only get there on Club Twit as well as uh, access to the Club Twit Discord um, for just $7 a month. You've heard Leo talking about the tough times that podcasts are facing with reduced advertising revenue, and they can really use your help. And frankly, so can we. So please consider signing up if you can. And you can follow the Twit Tech Podcast Network at Twit on Twitter and on Facebook and on twit.tv at Instagram. Thanks, everyone. And we will see you next time. Ooh, listeners of this program get an ad-free version if they're members of Club Twit. $7 a month gives you ad-free versions of all of our shows, plus membership in the Club Twit Discord, a great clubhouse for Twit listeners. And finally, the Twit Plus feed with shows like Stacy's Book Club, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz, and more. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. And thanks for your support.